Hi there, my name is Pete. This is Social Distancer, and this is the Easter special. It's going to be a bit of a different episode this week because the news has been dominated by the reports on race in the UK, uh, commissioned by the government, and it's come under uh, huge criticism since it was released a couple of days ago. So um, my approach is to bring you the voices of people that are in a good position to talk about this, David Lammy and a couple of other people as well. Um, So that's uh, basically the show. I talk also a little bit about a few other, you know, huge scandals um, that the government are implicated in. And I also talk about uh, going back to work because shielding has been lifted, um, which was brilliant. So I talk about that briefly. And I talk about the trajectory that the UK are on um, still, probably. Um, But in light of the trial for uh, the murder of George Floyd, it's, it's been a very strange and very difficult uh, week. We know that the reports was, well, what was it? Was it gaslighting? Yes. Was it a whitewash? Um, Well, what it was, was uh, a put-up job. It was a political put-up job. Um, Boris Johnson realized that he needed to have some answer for, you know, the fucking goons he sends out to the Today programme and all the media, like every day, you know, some minister has to be sent out. And in the wake of the George Floyd murder in the United States and the Black Lives Matter uh, protests across the world, including in many parts of Britain, uh, Boris Johnson realised, well, I need to do something about this. Not something about actually tackling racism, but about the fact that it was a bit uncomfortable for his ministers, not him, of course, because he can choose never to do interviews, and he does very, very few interviews. Um, But, you know, the ministers that are put out every day, what are they going to say? Because every day they're being, like, you know, fed statistic after statistic after statistic, which shows that we live in a country where institutional racism has been here, like, you know, for hundreds of years I mean there's no question about it you know and I'll go through I mean we don't need to go through the statistics it's so fucking blindingly obvious that the it's it's really interesting this report came out a couple of days ago yeah and ever since then the broadcasting like radio television has just been um, dominated by people's testimony about okay this happened to me this happened to me this happened to me this happened to me the report itself says, oh, yeah, well, there, there were a considerable number of people that gave anecdotal evidence about racism in their lives every single day. But nevertheless, we don't think that institutional racism is happening in Britain. And in fact, we, the UK, um, is a shining example of how to uh, be a multi-ethnic um, country. First of all, it looks like the guy that was in charge of this report, whose name is Dr. Sewell, um, he's been saying this thing for years. He's been basically trying to downplay the, the factor, the race, the factor that race plays on people that are not white having worse outcomes in essentially every single area of their lives. Yep. 
I mean, <laughs> it seems a bit weird that somebody would do that, but apparently this fucking goon has been doing it year after year after year after year. You know, I've heard people uh, phone up radio shows to people saying, yeah, I work with him. And he was saying this 20 years ago, you know. Someone else, yeah, I worked with him 10 years ago who was saying exactly the same thing. The idea, basically from a kind of um, political point of view, is that Boris Johnson needs an answer which is better than and easier for him to accept than, yes, there is structural racism, there is institutional racism in the UK. So uh, this is a quote from Professor Professor, uh, Kehind Andrews, Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University. Uh, He was speaking to PA Media here. Um, And he was asked whether he thought it was a a genuine attempt to understand racism. And he said, this is not a genuine effort to understand racism in Britain. This is a PR move to pretend the problem doesn't exist. The evidence is clear. It's been there for a long time around ethnic penalties in employment, around the problems in education, around the problems with policing. So there we go. This is a PR move. And another um, person who's very interested in Britain's relationship with Europe and wrote excellent um, analysis around Brexit, his name is Rob Ford, he said this is the kind of jiu-jitsu we can expect more of on identity and race issues, I suspect. The Conservatives' goal is to force a framing which makes liberal anti-racism look intolerant and makes their own inaction look like the product of success rather than acceptance of failure. And he's talking about a couple of lines in the report that is, I mean, inflammatory, very controversial, and it's got a lot of, you know, criticism. And I'm quoting Stephen Riker here now. Stephen Riker is a scientist who's on the independent stage, and I've spoken about him in the past. And he put this on Twitter. Um, Read this claim, quote, There is a new story about the Caribbean experience which speaks to the slave period, not only being about profit and suffering, but how culturally African people transformed themselves into a remodeled African stroke Britain. End quote. That, That weird fucking sentence is in the report. There's a new story about the Caribbean experience which speaks to the slave period, not only being about profit and suffering, but how culturally African people transformed themselves into a remodeled African stroke Britain. (laughs) I mean, you know. Okay, and so this is what Stephen says. Uh, You don't transform yourself. 12.5 million of you are brutally ripped from your homes and put on ships to the Americas. The conditions are so abominable, nearly 2 million of you don't make it. You are transformed into corpses. So this is the level, this is where we are in Britain, right? This is where we are in terms of how your government 
thinks about race because it was this guy here he had in his head the guy the um the chairman of the um of the commission his name's dr sewell he had it in his head for years and years for 20 years he's been saying the same thing it's not race it's because of other things this is what the report's big idea is it's because of geography it's because of class it's because of one parent families i mean what the fuck this is another um another uh, commentator um santham sangera says everyone involved in this report from rena miraz head of the policy unit at number 10 to tony sewell to boris johnson himself has been critical of the concept of institutional racism and argued racism is the culture of victimhood and guess what it concluded yep it concluded that race and racism is becoming less important in explaining social disparities and more important are things like class and geography. So here is David Lammy with his response. Tell that to Mina Smallman, who was mourning her two black daughters whilst police officers took selfies with their dead bodies and shared images on WhatsApp. Tell that to Doreen Lawrence, who is still seeking justice for the death of her son, Stephen. And tell that to Belly Majinga, who died of coronavirus after a man spat at her while she was working at a train station. Or you could speak to the mother of Leon Briggs, who died in police custody after being restrained face down on the floor by police officers in Luton. Or just go back to last summer and speak to Bianca Williams, who was stopped and searched while driving home from a training session, handcuffed, whilst her three-month-old son was screaming in the back seat. British people, white and black, are dying to turn the page on racism. They're working in food banks to support the marginalised. They're teaching in after-school clubs to raise awareness. They're working in rehabilitation centres to end the cycle of disproportionate mass incarceration. Boris Johnson has just slammed the door in their faces by telling them that they're idealists, they're wasting their time. He's let an entire generation of young, white and black British people down. Just as people marched against South Africa to free Mandela and Margaret Thatcher stood in their way. Just as folk got together and marched for an inquiry into the death of Stephen Lawrence and John Major stood in their way. Now young people across the country come together and say, yes, black lives do matter. And guess what? Boris Johnson stands in their way. Let's not forget that this report was rushed out in response to the overwhelming desire for change after the murder of George Floyd.
where thousands of people rallied for the black men, women and children suffering, still excluded in this country because of institutional racism. This report could have been a turning point and a moment to come together. Instead, it has chosen to divide us once more and keep us debating the existence of racism rather than doing anything about it. The report could have called and implemented Baroness Ruby McGregor Smith's recommendation for a mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting. It didn't. The report could have called for the implementation in full of my recommendations for a fairer criminal justice system. It didn't. The report could have honoured the memory of those who died at Grenfell Tower by acknowledging that black and Asian children are more likely in this country to live above the fourth floor of our high-rise blocks across England. And guess what? It didn't. This report could have drawn attention to the disproportional exclusion rates of black Caribbean boys at our school. But it didn't. Yes, we need to do more, of course we do in this country, for white working class boys. And yes, we need to tackle unemployment, particularly in many of our northern towns. And we need to eradicate poverty, child poverty in our seaside towns. Of course, race is not the only story. Nobody claims it is. This is a way more complex country than that. But race is an important part of the story. And I want to see black and white working class kids aspire for greatness. Equality is not a competition. It's an endeavour that requires us to be honest about the full range of obstacles that still exist in this country. And yes, that includes institutional racism. To say that Britain is a model to the world is to say that our police officers don't shoot as many black people as they do in the United States. It's to say that we don't jail 70% of Muslims like they do in France. Where their prison population from Muslim, from people from a Muslim Arab background is so extraordinarily high, 70%. It's to say that we don't lock up indigenous children in detention centres like they do in Australia. Is that really the standard on which the UK wants to compare itself? I say to Tony, you sit down with Mina Smallman. You sit down with Doreen Lawrence. You sit down with Belly Majenga's family. You sit down with Leon Briggs's family. You sit down with Bianca Williams. And if you really sat down with them, you would do so much more to heal their pain. It's an insult to everybody and anybody across this country who experiences institutional racism. And it's an insult to generations of white and black Britons who have come together determined 
walking and sitting together. So many teachers across our country trying to go into schools and do their best to turn the page on this. I tell myself that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And I know that thousands of you are right there beside me. It would help, frankly, if this government were not so determined to bend the arc backwards. David Lammy talked about Doreen Lawrence there. And in relation to the Stephen Lawrence murder, it's really important to remember the role that police corruption played in that. One of the uh, five people that murdered him was the father of one of them was a gangster who had um, police officers in his pocket. He was paying police officers. And so, you know, notoriously, they did a terrible job investigating. I mean, just unbelievable. Sloppy. It wasn't sloppy. It was that they were making money on the side from this uh, notorious gangster. And his son, who went on to murder Stephen Lawrence, had already stabbed two other people. Just like, you know, in the year following, uh, in the year running up to... Um, Stephen Lawrence's murder. It's incredible. So here is uh, Doreen Lawrence talking about her. So this is her response to the report. Um, I think when I heard the news this morning, my first thought was that um, the report has pushed um, racism back 20, 20 years and more. Um, I think if you were to um, speak to somebody who um, is employer, speak to him in a certain way, where do, you, where do you go with that now? If a person needs um, for promotion and he's been denied that, where does he go with that now? You know, um, all the things that we've been working for and showing the, the structural racism that exists, we talk about the pandemic, when you look at how many of our people have died, all the nurses, the doctors, the frontline staff who have died through COVID. And to have this report is more or less denying that those people have suffered. They're denying that, you know, the likes of my son was murdered through racism and the fact it took nearly um, 18 years to get justice for him because of racism. So all of those things that the report now is denying all those issue those people who march for black life matters is denying all of that the george floyd stuff is denied all of that david lammy also spoke about mina smallman who was the church of england's first black female archdeacon and unbelievably her uh, daughters were murdered um, and their bodies were left in a park and unbelievably, two Metropolitan Police officers were uh, arrested because they photographed themselves with the bodies and shared them. So they took a fucking selfie with two corpses, two murder victims, and shared those images on WhatsApp. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, 
Uh, this is Britain. Like, this happened. It didn't happen fucking in 1993. It didn't happen in 1953. This happened last year. This happened in June 2020, right? And, you know, who knows the names, Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry? Who knows their names? Um, found stabbed to death in a park in northwest London, June 2020. Um, in total, 13 officers have been informed their conduct is under investigation for potential brief- breaches of standards of professional behaviour. That was late last year. They were, um, you know, informed that their conduct breached the standards of professional behaviour. Yeah, I'd say so. These are the people that received the um, WhatsApp photos and, well, the selfies you know, distributed through WhatsApp and didn't report it. The two police officers have been arrested and they've been suspended um, from duty. (laughs) Unbelievable. And um, so this is quite a powerful interview that Mina Smallman gave um, in the days after her daughters were murdered. And it's, you know, so steal yourself for this because it probably is quite... Uh, difficult to listen to. I find it really difficult to listen to. Um, so here is Mina Smallman. Within 10 minutes of going to the spot where the girls were, they found Bieber's glasses and then a few yards away they found that, and it turned out it was the murder weapon. In 10 minutes of going to that spot. What did you think about the police when you discovered that? What were your thoughts? It just... You know that that there are some very good police out there. But do you know what? I knew instantly why they didn't care. They didn't care because they looked at my daughter's address and thought they knew who she was. What do you mean? Um a black woman who lives on a council estate. And they weren't available to help? No. No, they'd made a decision. They knew who they were. They knew their lives. They knew, actually, they probably didn't work, unemployed, doing drugs, in a gang. Because they must be, right? Because they're black. Mustn't they? Because I don't have another explanation. A 46-year-old professional woman and a 27-year-old professional. Why would you not take it seriously? Some 40, 40, 36 hours later, your, your friends and family have to do the research that you're paid to do. And within 10 minutes of being at the scene of the crime, they found the murder weapon. The lead person from the independent organisation said, I I don't know how to tell you this, but we had an anonymous um, tip-off to say that police officers were taking selfies 
and posing for pictures with your dead daughters. I just, I... Trying to... Up until that point, I hadn't had an image or anything. But the image I, I have and keep on having is of, you know, in the deep south when they used to um, lynch people and you would see smiling faces around a hanging dead body. And also of game hunters of old holding elephant tusks or standing with their foot on the neck of an elephant or, or a tiger. Those police officers dehumanised our children. They... They were nothing to them. And what's worse, they sent them on to members of the public. This is what the independent representative told yes. you? Yes. Yes. I said, can you see their faces? He said, I'd like to tell you that you can't but unfortunately you can. This has taken our grief to another place, to another place. This, if ever we needed to understand that the institutional racism within the police force and other institutions, the Church of England, education. If ever we needed an example of how toxic it has become, those police officers felt so safe, so untouchable, that they felt they could take photographs of dead black girls and send them on. Now, don't say they're stupid because actually I think that's an insult to people who might not be particularly bright. L don't equate them to this is typical of kids and selfies. That's an insult to the youth. Don't talk to me about desensitization. You know, our professionals do and see terrible things, but they don't do things like that. These police officers dehumanised our children and it speaks volumes of the ethos that runs through the Metropolitan Police. And what do I want to come out of this? I want Black Lives Matter not to become a slogan every time something appalling happens and then we all retreat. I want it to make a change and a difference, like the Me Too, like the Time's Up. 
positive action came out of that. And I want positive action to come out of this. But it's nearly 30 years since Stephen Lawrence was murdered, since there was a public inquiry, since there was a disclosure that there was institutional racism within the Metropolitan Mm. Police. Mm. What has changed in Mm. almost 30 Mm. years? Nothing. They've just got better at covering it up. They just, it, it is so entrenched in the whole ethos that they've normalized it. It's, un, you know, they say to me, it's changing. It's changing, the younger, the younger ones are coming up and it's changing. Yeah, but the balance of power is still like that. You know, the job of the police is to keep the bad guys out, not to behave like the bad guys. You know, you, you can't, black people don't feel they can call the police and trust them to deal with their issues because all kinds of assumptions are being made about who they are because of where they live or because of their circumstances. It's not good enough. It really isn't good enough. So the Met Police, you know, a couple of weeks ago, somebody in the Met Police, a serving police officer, murdered Sarah Everard. And, you know, there was a report on whether the um, aggressive, heavy-handed, violent tactics by the Met Police, who were supposed to be policing a vigil, in remembrance to Sarah Everard, um, you know, whether they were kind of heavy-handed or not policing appropriately, of course that report came back and said, oh, no, no, that was absolutely fine. Nothing to see here. In the last couple of days, there have been numerous stories about the Met Police uh, essentially, you know, being uh, criminal, acting criminally in various ways and um, the uh, repercussions of their criminal behaviour being different to how you kind of imagine things to be. So the Guardian of today now has got a story uh, about a police officer who executed somebody uh, and he's facing a gross misconduct charge. But at the same time, he's training other police officers in using firearms. This is a guy who... um, shot somebody who was in a car who was planning to uh, break somebody out of prison apparently Um, but we'll never know because you know I didn't know that we had the death penalty in in Britain I didn't know that you could do that as a police officer that you can kill somebody like he just shot somebody dead and still he's got a job (laughs) unbelievable and not only does he just have a job He's not just, you know, sitting behind a desk, having been suspended, waiting gross misconduct charges that are going to happen in a couple of weeks. Um, No, no, he's not doing that. He's training people to use firearms. It's unbelievable. Another police officer accused of raping two colleagues. He's continuing to serve on the force despite being subject to a misconduct inquiry. The accused man remained in post during a two-year criminal investigation into the allegations, which were first made in 2017 and is now facing an internal inquiry over potential breaches of professional standards. 
It's unbelievable. And this guy's still serving. It's unbelievable. Again, like this made, you know, big news yesterday. Met police officer sentence uh, for belonging to a banned far-right terrorist organization. This guy was 20 years, 22 years old. The police didn't even bother getting a reference from his school where a teacher had reported his racism. It's unbelievable. The sloppiness. I mean, it isn't sloppiness. This is, you know, criminal corruption. And you could say, oh, well, you know, there's thousands of... All the fucking excuses. You know, we've heard it all before. We've heard it for years and years and years and years. But there is something absolutely chilling about what Mina uh, Smallman said in relation to the the connection she makes between lynching and posing with those dead bodies and the selfies that were taken with the corpses in a fucking park in North London. Unbelievable. This is Britain. This is Britain. Have no doubt about it. This is Britain. This is Boris Johnson's Britain, and there is so much work to be done. Boris Johnson's advisor on race has resigned. Samuel Kasumu, um, he's resigned. He's going to leave his role next month. Uh, Of course, Downing Street are denying that it's got anything to do with the report. But the person that put him in there when Theresa May was in charge, who set up this race disparity unit in within the Home Office, he says, well, of course, it's got to do with the report. He says the only black special advisor in number 10 has felt that his only recourse to this grubby, divisive Sewell report is to resign. I appointed Samuel to the race disparity advisory group when we first launched. He's a decent man whose energy has been hell bent on serving this country and tackling systemic racism. This is going to be a real moment for the PM and his aides in 10 Downing Street. Black people around the country are incandescent with rage that their lived experience of persistent race inequality is being denied and belittled. So there's a couple of other stories. David Cameron is a dodgy motherfucker who would have thought it. Lex Greensill had his own uh, business card, which is quite a shocking thing to find. Um to see, you know, senior advisor, number 10, number 10 business card, this uh, guy, Lex Greensill, and also Jennifer Okuri, four years, and all she got was £120,000, four years sleeping with Boris Johnson, Jesus Christ, I'd ask for a lot more than that, and um, vaccine-wise, things are going well, now 9.4%, of the of adults in the UK have been vaccinated uh, twice, double vaccination, which is brilliant, and it's just under 60% for the first vaccination. So that's going really well. I mean, you know, and deaths are continuing to fall, uh, hospital admissions are continuing to fall, and cases are continuing to fall as well, which is really good. So there's a relationship between the R number cases and deaths that we all know about. And we can imagine that things are going to continue to fall. There is a, you know, obviously we know that there's a a, a danger, uh, you know, quite a significant danger of, of things going off piste because, you know, France is 
going through a second wave, there's no question about it, and we don't really have um, secure controls in terms of people coming over from France to Britain. But at the same time, having said that, you know, France going is in uh, is going into a lockdown, so you would imagine that not many people are going to be coming from France to the UK, you know, kind of um, relative to the normal, you know, world that doesn't exist anymore now, of course. Um, personally speaking, I had a fantastic day going back to work yesterday. I absolutely loved it. It was incredible seeing people. A bit weird, but I really, I absolutely loved it. I just loved it. I really look forward to going back. Obviously, it's great to be on holiday and not do any work because, of course, I was working, you know, from home. But it was fantastic seeing everyone. And, um, yeah, uh, I felt really safe. Like, I felt like, you know, it made a big difference that the kids were wearing masks. I work in a secondary school. So that made a big difference. But also, and I don't know if that's going to continue. I hope it does, obviously. But I don't know. I've got a feeling that it won't continue. But um, Boris Johnson will think, oh, well, it's easier. But, you know, people can cope with it. And I had one teacher of the three whose rooms I was in telling the children, speak up, I can't hear you from your mask. But, you know, it's not that difficult, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, it's incredibly, um, you know, accessible way of making sure that the virus isn't transmitted as much. And even if it is transmitted, when you think about the case, the um, dosage, what they call that, you know, the spittle dose, then that all of that kind of stuff makes a difference. The viral load, all of that kind of stuff makes a big difference, yep. So, of course, it's brilliant to see masks on the faces of the people in school. Um, lockdown, I'm not entirely sure how much adhered to it is or isn't being. The weather has changed. It really feels like, well, it is spring, and we're getting some good days now. In fact, in Britain, in some parts of Britain, it's been blockbuster, like hottest days ever in March, or, you know, hottest days in the last 50 years or whatever, in some parts of Britain. So I think that, you know, it, there is a tension between people really wanting to kind of get out there and uh, knowing that they have to, you know, be sensible, you know. Um, but at the same time, if you've got 60% of your uh, adult population uh, being vaccinated once and 10% being vaccinated twice, then that is a huge protection, absolute huge protection. And speaking personally, somebody that has had the, uh, the vaccine, you do feel like Yes, there is a, the, the, like, you know, I was speaking to a friend of mine at work without my mask on whilst we were having lunch together. And I said to her, you know, it hasn't changed anything. Oh, no, actually it has, because I wouldn't have been having this conversation with you without my mask on uh, if I hadn't had had the vaccine. So it does make a difference. And obviously I'm not being, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I'm not being stupid. And we were social distancing and the windows were open and all the rest of it, it was inside. But at the same time, you know, I do, I said to her, you know, you do have to calibrate your response to this crisis. If I've been vaccinated, like, you know, eight 
weeks ago, I know that I have an immune protection in me. And I know that even if I do get COVID-19, which I'm not going to get COVID-19 from speaking to someone for literally two minutes, socially distanced, when the fucking window's open next to me, the chances of that happening with or without a vaccine, even if she has got COVID-19, which the chances are tiny that she has because of where we are, and I know the local stats, obviously, you know, even if that was the case, um, I did get it. Are you following me? (laughs) Then... Uh, you know, the the uh, the, the uh, impact that COVID will have on me will, you know, probably not even send me into hospital. There's a good, a very, very good chance that I wouldn't be hospitalised if I got COVID-19 now. And of course, I'm not putting myself in any position to get COVID-19, like obviously. But that real rigour of, you know, only wearing masks. Well, of course, like you just ca- calibrate it. You know, I have the protection of the vaccine. So it'd be really weird if I did like have a fucking mask on whilst, you know, speaking to a couple of people who are like way away from me and I'm sitting next to an open window. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, yeah, I think you get the point that I'm feeling quite good personally about that. Uh, politically, it is a hodgepodge of a like cesspit of a place the UK at the moment things have changed they probably change well it's all obviously you know David Cameron not only being a dodgy motherfucker made the like the mistake of his life to just not manage his party well in relation to you know a small band of Eurosceptic you know insane people uh, instead of fronting them up, he said, oh, yeah, that's fine. Let's have a fucking, uh, <laughs> let's have a referendum. And, you know, it doesn't, it's incredible that uh, Boris Johnson, who, when he um, makes racist remarks, racism, like, obvious, like actual attacks on real life human beings, they like skyrocket, like obviously they do. Because he's the Prime Minister. And even when he was before the Prime Minister, he was the fucking Mayor of London. And before that, it was like a kind of celebrity journalist. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's incredible that that fucking bozo is, uh, you know, in charge of this country. I've come back to talking about Sausage Johnson, haven't I? Yes. Episode 217, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend if it is the weekend. After this outro music, we have got a humdinger of a paranormal blip with Lou Alessandro. It is incredible. If you're into this even a little bit, you've got to listen to Paranormal Blip. Oh my God, you won't believe it. Anyway, let's think of the koala. Had a great uh, dream the other night. Koala on the menu. Americans loved it. The Australians were pissed off. But in real life, you can get koala in the... Wuhan markets. Four, so that's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. So let's think of the koala. One, two, three. Walk between the raindrops. Take care of yourselves. Even if you've had the vaccine, make sure you don't go fucking nuts. Wear that bloody mask, all the rest of it. Wash your hands, all the rest of it. See you later. <laughs>
That music can only mean that this is Paranormal Blip. And today we are looking at Louis Elizondo, a new video about him. It's an interview with him. And this guy that's interviewing him, I'm not sure what his name is, but I think he's from the Netherlands. And he is, he's uh, got a channel on YouTube called UAP Information Channel. It's quite a small channel. He's only got 834 subscribers, which, you know, in the big scheme of things isn't much, is it? No. Uh, but he's a big fan of that film, The Paranormal. The, the, um, the Paranormal. <laughs> The phenomenon, the phenomenon, uh, because in his little blurb here, he says, after much anticipation, filmmaker James Fox's latest documentary, The Phenomenon, was released on October the 6th, 2020. This film has many new videos that even experienced UFO subject students have not seen. Without a doubt, this will be widely recognised as one of the best UFO documentaries to appear in some time. And I agree with him there. And then he's got a link to the phenomenon as well. And I think the phenomenon is a really, really excellent introduction to this subject. And not only an introduction, but quite a good investigation into it as well. And it does contain stuff that I didn't know about. I mean, I'm not a big, you know, uf- ufologist really in any thing, scheme of things. But I do like the old deep dive, don't I? And there's lots of new stuff that I didn't know about, even though I've been looking into this for, only looking into this for a couple of weeks. Uh, but my brother liked the phenomenon, if that means anything to you, and it bloody should. Anyway, here's Lou Alessandro. Now, he was, they're talking about, the guy asked, um, is there any DNA? Can you tell us about DNA? And Lou said, well, DNA, DNA shmirna, because DNA doesn't mean like the lack of DNA doesn't mean there's a lack of life because virus, you know, it, it reproduces, it doesn't have DNA, it has RNA. So that's the kind of conversation they're having when this dude, the Netherlands guy, whose name I don't know, I think maybe it's Max, is it Max? Maybe it's Max. Anyway, he says this. Yeah, of course, you know, it, it doesn't mean like, uh, in theory, other life forms have, have, the, have to have the same uh, uh, circumstances as we as humans have, you know, maybe they, they are um, uh, accustomed to another totally different climate or, you know, maybe uh, can live without some things we cannot live uh, uh, without. Um, but is there some uh, maybe uh, equivalent to what DNA is to us you maybe have been investigating at the time? Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pass on that question only because uh, I don't think the answer would be um, be satisfying. Um, we looked at a lot of things in the early days, particularly under the OSAP umbrella of ATIP. Uh, we looked at a lot of things, and a lot of things were, were very interesting, very compelling. But at the end of the day, uh, I can only speak on behalf of ATIP and my time in ATIP and my function in ATIP. And during my time at ATIP, our focus was primarily on the, the nuts and bolts of, of the UAP phenomenon. Okay, sir. So that's really interesting, I think. And I spoke about 
um, how Lou Alexander, I think I said this in last week's episode of Paranormal Blip, how he's very good at being quite upfront with the people interviewing him, saying, yeah, I can answer that or I can't answer that, you know? And that was a good example of that. So there's obviously something there, you know, but in his agreement that he has with the US government, who are obviously kind of allowing him to speak to the public and kind of get it out there, you know, there are certain things that he can talk about and there's certain things that he can't talk about. And so it's a really interesting answer, you know, and it was a really interesting question as well. So now the next stage of this interview, which I found really interesting, was um, they, they, they talk about gravity, okay, gravity. And there's these five observables that Louis Alessandro, um, you know, kind of like benchmarks um, unidentified phenomena against. So he goes through these five observables. One of them is about how they propel in the air. And so he's talking about that. He says, like, you know, obviously we know about how, you know, fucking rockets work. And we know that, you know, it's, uh, submarines are shaped in such a way and work in such a way because they go through water. Planes are shaped in another way and they work in another way because they go through air. And uh, rockets are shaped. Yeah, you get the gist. But And then he goes on to talk about these things, these unknown uh, craft. So here he is. So, so yeah, look, you know, we're talking about gravity. So, you know, there were three fun. There, there's up up until recently, there was only one fundamental model for 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 science, and that was Newtonian science, where we all understand about gravity falling from the tree and force equals mass times acceleration and whatnot. Then last century along comes this guy named Einstein with the crazy hair, and he proposes the theory of relativity, where we now realize space and time are actually connected they're not two different things they're actually connected intimately and they're flexible you can actually stretch space time uh and then now over the last 30 years four years we have the introduction of quantum physics which is yet another bizarre layer upon our reality but yet it is it is very true and it explains the universe at the very small levels and once uh there was a gentleman who described uh quantum physics this way a dog walks into a box and out walks two cats doesn't make sense and yet that's what we're seeing uh, you know from a from an observation perspective i think that's what that was <laughs> so so in essence we have we have we have three types of science that are all true and correct and when you look at gravity and what gravity is we assume this is gravity when i let the pen go it falls but that's not really gravity. That is a result of gravity. Gravity is really the warping of space-time. And that warping of space-time creates this, we can call it an attractive force, but it, it, it may not even be that at all. It may be something even much more bizarre. But, but for argument's sake, uh, if you had the ability to negate or neutralize the effects of Earth's gravity, in essence, pretend like Earth isn't even here, then the way you experience space-time would fundamentally be different than the way outside. So if you were able to successfully create a bubble around you right now in your studio and insulate yourself from the effects of Earth's gravity, a couple of things would happen. First of all, you wouldn't need wings or engines. 
to float because gravity no longer affects you there. Secondly, it, you would have the ability to move around in space-time, but from the outside observer, I would see you performing things that seem to be unbelievably crazy. But in reality, for, from your perspective, you're just behaving normally, and I and everybody else outside your bubble is is walking in slow motion. So it's it's both are real but they're relative to each other and so a lot of the the observations we're seeing the observables may very well be uh, a result of someone or something has now the technology to manipulate the space-time construct in a localized area and that is why we are able to see the five observables the way we do okay well well that was a good answer wasn't it yeah um yeah manipulating gravity and so that's why it looks so you know fast um and he talked about the g's between 400 and 800 g's uh that these um craft are are, you know moving at and the human body can only tolerate nine after nine g's basically you start to you know die <laughs> and as a, a, a the the f-16 which is an aircraft i believe it's called the f-16 that can uh tolerate uh, 18 g's um anything above 18 g's for the f-16 which is the kind of best aircraft a jet that can um you know kind of tolerate these things, General Dynamics F-16 Fighter Falcon. Um, yeah, anything above 18 Gs and then it starts to rip apart. Yeah. So something is going on where he also spoke about, you know, his his work in the government re- was really looking at, you know, what what is it and how does it work? Those were the two questions he was talking about. He didn't talk about... Um, the history of this, which is fascinating from my point of view, you know, and for people interested, obviously, you know, it's incredible to think that the Washington flap happened, you know, in 1952. I mean, that's unbelievable. It's incredible to know that, uh, you know, recently and still now, you know, places where there's lots of military activity and over um, nuclear sites, um, uh, you know, UFOs or UAPs, as they're becoming becoming to be known as, um, appear. And that Dutch guy was talking about, whose name is Max, was talking about a famous case in 1977 in this place in Holland, where um, the secretly the United States had planted um, nuclear weapons. Yep, they'd stored nuclear weapons. In this um, on this kind of military site in in the Netherlands, and um, UFO a UFO appeared one day. Like loads of people, like you know, loads of people in the military and civilians saw it, and it was the size of a football field, and it was a triangle shape, you know. So that's really interesting to know that we've got that history um, of you know UFOs. But in terms of uh, Lou Alexander's 
focus when he was working for the government. It was about it was about now, and it, it was part. It's partly about now because now we've got three ways of observing them. We've got video footage, obviously. We've got radar and all of the kind of um, technical ways of observing, and we've got. Um, humans as well you know people can see and hear can't they yes they can so those three things coming together and he said like you know typically in the past it would be eyewitnesses you know there'll be an eyewitness account and of course it's really easy to disprove eyewitness well not disprove but just ignore and debunk eyewitness accounts you know but it's much more difficult to debunk accounts whereby you've got the like the favor video I mean you can't debunk that because it's like it's clearly like the the Pentagon said this happened. You know, when the Pentagon starts saying this happened, and when the Pentagon and the you know U.S. government are um, doing getting Lou Alessandro to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and he's very clear about that. You know, this is what I can talk about and what I can't talk about. It's clear that they're wanting to kind of say certain things about these. Um, these craft um, another question that I didn't cover that I haven't um, dropped the audio to was about this about signatures signatures coming off of gravita- gravitational changes which I don't know anything about it but that was one of the questions that this guy Max who's clearly kind of steeped in this um, knew to ask you know and again um, Lou said sorry but you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to pass on that one. So yeah, there we go. Really, very interesting. And I'll see you next week for another episode of Paranormal Blip. <laughs>